Okay, good morning everyone. We'll jump back into our study of Proverbs at chapter 22. And we're quickly approaching the close of Solomon's Proverbs, those that belong to him properly. That end comes at verse 16 of chapter 22. And then if you have a Lutheran study Bible or something similar that labels these subsections, you'll see that verse 17 is labeled words of the wise. And so this is going to start a collection that Solomon himself has curated and uh, maybe even some evidence modified some of the highest levels of wisdom that were popular at his time in order to give us the wisdom of others, though again, still curated and filtered through the mind and pen, as it were, of King Solomon. So that's where we are and where we are headed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, last week we hit some Proverbs that are really thought-provoking, and we took some uh, time, I think that would be one way to put it, we took some time with those Proverbs. So, on to, uh, well, just by way of kind of getting a running start, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, We recall there we had a rather extended discourse on parenting and the modern world, the basis of biblical principles, what some of the pitfalls are of previous and our own generations. Then verse 7 concluded our session last week. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. We talked about the corruption of the love of money and the misuse of money, people being turned uh, to a, as a means to an end, and that end just further self-enrichment. Whereas money is, should be used to serve our fellow neighbor, we use our fellow neighbor to get more money. And of course, as we can easily lament amongst the wealthiest in the world today, they don't need any more money. It's not even about eating, it's not even about eating or drinking or having luxuries. It's just about ego and pride and control. And of course, we lamented that the borrower is the slave of the lender, especially in our uh, society where everything is predicated upon usury and false weights and false measures, financial shenanigans. Okay, well, you can see from just those two why it took us a while to process through those proverbs. On to eight, then, and the new material for today. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. So, in view here is the man, the subject, who sows injustice. You remember, sowing is like casting seeds, and then the seeds grow, and they produce the crop, and that's the fruit. What is the fruit of sowing the seeds of injustice? Nothing good, just calamity. So, calamity becomes what you harvest if you reap injustice. And this same subject, his fury, the rod of his fury, what he can control, um, that will fail. So his power, his ability to control will fail. So this is a huge check and balance. Again, we could file this under the Proverbs of the Lord is watching and he cares. He may be patient and more patient than we sometimes appreciate, But when his judgment comes, his judgment comes swift and decisively against the wicked. That's the nature of this proverb. So that the rod of his fury fails under the, I mean, I'm presuming here under the rod of God's greater fury and wrath at the injustice. So. 
So you can see this societally, and you can see this personally. That uh, if one acts like a scoundrel, bad things keep happening. It's a general sort of truth. And when a whole society gives itself over to injustice, where you can't trust anyone with anything, the calamities produce themselves, as it were, and the corruption. Um, ruins the infrastructure so that even when a quote-unquote act of God or worsely named natural disaster comes, if there wasn't such corruption, the society could have banded together and staved off the disaster with its infrastructure or what have you. Um, but all corruption has eroded that, so when disaster comes, there is nothing to stop it. All right, on to nine. Whoever has a bountiful, literally a good eye. Jesus has something to say about the evil eye, if you remember that. Whoever has a good eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So here, a good eye in context would be something like compassionate, being able to see the needs of others. And of course, if you've spent any time in spiritual introspection, you know that that's, that's the first level of problem. That's the first level of sickness. As you go, well, I didn't even see it. Once you see it, which can be granted by God, then the next problem emerges, which is a reluctance to do anything about it. And the tug of the flesh towards one's own selfish desires. So... There's this beautiful way of, of looking as, Lord, give me eyes to see and then hands to act upon what I see. So this idea of a good eye is very broad and general. To have a good eye is, I mean, I suppose at its broadest, is to see the way that God sees, to perceive the way that God perceives. That would be element of law and gospel, let's say, element of... Uh, uh, ultimately love, whether that be love experienced as a, a kind of harsh or hard love or love experienced as a tender and compassionate love. But here in context, narrowly defined, uh, beautiful eye, good eye, um, will uh, be a compassionate eye that shares his bread with the poor and with the promise of blessing. So, again, we could file this likewise under the God is watching in a positive sense. That while God watches and judges and will bring calamity upon the evil, God watches and judges and will bring blessing upon the compassionate. That's um, an observation, then, of King Solomon here in this proverb. The will be blessed has an element of promise to it, no doubt about it. Okay, for those of you who may have just come in, uh, chapter 22, and we're about to move on to 10, verse 10. But before we do, uh, let me know if you have any thoughts or perspective. One up here. So these are proverbs, not promises of God, guidelines for, for, for living life. Uh, in the context of this one, uh, of basically caring for the poor, uh, and your neighbor, uh, Jesus said in you know in the upper room. He said, "Today I give you a new commandment: love one another." I mean, how do we understand? So in the Old Testament, this was not a a command uh, to love one another. I mean, can you comment uh, on that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's gonna it's gonna take us a little bit down a tangent, but it's probably worth it because everybody has that question. So I'll try to answer as efficiently as possible, which hasn't proven to be a very valuable promise in the past. <laughs> Uh, not only our Lord's words in the upper room, but then also St. John in his epistle uh, takes up this theme of the old commandment and the new commandment. And it's wonderful and it's delightful because the commandment is the same, love. But love in the Old Testament, apart from the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus, and indeed love considered just in the way of law, can't help but condemn. Even if we love the law, even if we see that the law of love is good and we seek to emulate that and we seek to love, we find that we cannot. 
um, we find that law of love condemning us. That would be the old commandment under the old covenant. Most broadly applied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, etc., and love your neighbor as yourself. It becomes this ideal that we can't meet and thus condemns us. So it is an old commandment, but it is also new. In what way is it new? Well, it's fulfilled in Christ. Now, that takes some time to fetch out. It's fulfilled in Christ in the sense that he becomes the righteousness we lack, that he is, embodies perfect love and credits that perfect love to our account, reckoning us righteous on account of faith. But it's also true that Christ fulfills that old law, um, and again, par excellence on the cross, when God rightly forsakes him as the bearer of all our sins, he who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us, and yet Christ loves God, even when being forsaken by God, loves him with his whole heart. My God, my God, he cries out, praying Psalm 22, which is a psalm of faith. And then likewise for man, even as man is falsely accused him, falsely condemned him, spitting on him, jeering him, has him naked in front of uh, all, including his mother, uh, has tortured him, and they continue their assaults, uh, wishing to crucify and put him to death and erase him forever. But first, of course, nailing him to a cross like a human billboard of what not to be, um, Even while we show such murderous hatred, he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So this is perfect love fulfilled in the cross of Jesus. And this is the moment in which the law is transformed from old to new. That's the same word, love. That's why... Especially John in his epistle will say, a new commandment I give to you, not a new commandment, but an old commandment, and then he'll describe it, and then he'll say, so a new commandment. (laughs) It is to say that the content, there's continuity, it's the same word, love, it's the same concept, but it's been transfigured by our Lord's crucifixion. And that that love now and that command to love one another, that John's epistle is filled with Christ's words in the upper room intend, is a love transformed, not, no longer a love that condemns. There's nothing left to condemn. Christ has borne all condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's no longer a commandment that condemns, but rather the very beating heart of who we are as Christians, as Christians who love as he loves, who are ever being conformed into his image and into the image of his love, Love for God is put to the test when you are afflicted by things that God could easily remove, but he doesn't. And when you are afflicted by man, who should love you, who should at least be neighborly to you, and hates and despises and persecutes you. So love is transformed from something that is Uh, condemnatory, a goal that can't be reached, is something that you already possess. It's already written into your heart by the Holy Spirit as a Christian, and thus it then becomes a new way of life and a new way of perceiving reality. So that any perceived affliction from God or any perceived affliction from man become opportunities to love, to live that cruciform life of love. So it's utterly transformed and transfigured. It's at, the, at one and the same time, it's old and new. There's continuity, but there's also discontinuity in that the law of love has been transfigured by Christ. And do you remember the, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is that God will, in that day of the new covenant, not only does this uh, prophecy of the new covenant contain the forgiveness of sins but also that God will write his law into our heart. That's what Jeremiah is getting at, and what our Lord and what St. John are saying is now fulfilled. There is an ontological difference in Christians on account of the crucifixion of Jesus and the new man within 
who is none other than the man in the image of Christ, the man of love. Does that make sense? That's as fast as I can do it. Okay. Uh, great question. Any, anything else we want to touch on in terms of these Proverbs or in terms of what we just discussed? All right, I'm going to take opportunity to press us on then. So, 10. Now, this is great because look at the contrast. Look at 9, which is compassion, sharing bread with those who have not, and the blessing that comes. But then look at this aspect of love. 10. Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Okay, so what does love look like here? I mean, in a sense, the antithesis of compassion, because you're driving out. And yet, on deeper analysis, by driving out, who are you? By driving out one, who are you having compassion upon? All the rest. And by retaining the one, you're having compassion on him, but not on all the rest. This is an important, obviously, moral and thus legal principle, but it has many, many applications. You have got to get rid of the cancer, or the cancer will spread. Do we think of a doctor who says, you've got a tumor, and you say, well, it's part of me, so you should be compassionate to it. No, that kind of compassion is not compassion at all. And this is, this is really what's plaguing so much of the American ethos, and so much of the American Christian ethos. I mean, you will hear pastors advocating that spiritual cancer be retained in the church and in society uh, out of compassion. Like a cancer physician saying, well, you should just uh, leave it there, let it grow, let it spread. Cancer cells are cells too. All cells matter. So the biblical... Statement here is one that we, and the biblical wisdom here is one we've utterly lost sight of. We've lost our minds. We're Corinthian in our lawlessness and our inability to do what needs to be done for the good. And we even sit on our high horses and on our porcelain thrones judging the Almighty when He acts decisive and decisively and when He judges and condemns, when He demands that. A man who sheds the life of another shall have his blood shed. We (gasps) bite our nails and clutch our pearls and continue to allow evil to spread like cancer in our midst. And then we get to the critical times in which we're in now and we go, how did this happen? How did we get so full of cancer? So, um, obviously, I'm, I'm doing a very broad application and meditation on this proverb, but uh, it's narrow. It's as narrow as your own self. It's as narrow as uh, potentially um, people in your family. Now, scoffing here, um, just to put as fine a point on it as we can, is in the context of Proverbs, one who scoffs against God and the wisdom of God. This isn't someone who has a sarcastic or sardonic personality per se. It's someone who is uh, a mocker against God and the things of God. Um, and, and or one who just causes ceaseless strife because he, do, he or she does not fear God. So I think we kind of laughingly call these people, um, we say something to the effect of like, oh, they're, they're full of drama or something like that. Uh, and that's fine. I mean, but yeah, so don't, sp- I, I mean, here would, be a, here would be a more passive take on the proverb. Don't spend time with dramatic people. Because it's just constant conflict. Who needs that in their life? Not you. Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. It's a really long story, and most of you are familiar with it, so I'll just go really fast here. Um, many years ago in faith, early in the, in the morning, um, I was working on a sermon, and we had an intruder come in, and uh, he ended up uh, spraying me with a fire extinguisher. It's 
count that up to the, one of the more bizarre experiences I've had in my life. Uh, police came and the investigation and everything else. And um, this guy was on a, uh, they think, a drug-fueled crime spree and had done some other stuff. And uh, they, they thought that he had showed up, and indeed he had, on the security films at the local Quickie Mart or whatever it was in Dana Point. So the police asked me to go with them uh, to the Quickie Mart to find out, um, to watch the security tapes and see if I could identify the guy which led to the humorous and uncomfortable circumstance of me riding in my collar in the back seat of a police cruiser <laughs> <laughs> through Dana Point. <laughs> At any rate, the point is, uh, I was asking them, you know, does this... I mean, not does this kind of thing occur frequently, because obviously it doesn't, that somebody cuts a hole into your ceiling, ninjas their way into a church, drops down, only to spray someone with a fire extinguisher and then run out. Obviously, that doesn't happen frequently, but, you know, how frequent is the kind of crime and the kind of crime spree that this guy was engaged in? And they said, you would be shocked. Um, and this was, again, just the, the word of one officer, so completely anecdotal. But he said to me, you would be shocked. It's about the same 20 or 30 people who do all the crime over and over and over again. I see some heads nodding, so especially some law enforcement heads. So I'll take that as, uh, as good enough. Um, that is indicative of what this proverb's discussing. Drive out a scoffer more broadly. Drive out evil. And strife will go out with it, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Crime rates will plummet. And so it's like your mom said, you know, one, one bad apple spoils the bunch. And so it would be a miscarriage of compassion to allow that evil uh, to go on tainting and filling the rest with strife and quarreling. Okay, maybe enough on that one. Any, uh, any thoughts there? Okay, 11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Boy, that has to be a godly king, doesn't it? <laughs> And indeed, I think that's what's in view. Um, Solomon and David, godly kings, uh, or at least Solomon in the main, I hope. Um, but ultimately, Christ. Ultimately, Christ, who rules all in all, who has all authority over heaven and earth. Um, he who loves purity of heart. Remember when it was popular in Lutheranism for a couple decades to say, like, oh, if you love purity in heart, you're a pietist? Or the equivalent? Oh, you're hung up on purity of heart. Uh, you must not love the gospel. False dichotomy. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Um, remember what Christ says in his Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, about the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So purity of heart, we can talk about this. And, and, and again, not to put too many constraints on, on a concept and a reality uh, that is really large and has large bounds. But to just, at the same time, communicate something meaningful, purity of heart is a matter of faith in Christ. No, no faithful Christian could dispute that. The purity of heart is a gift freely given. That's one aspect or one side of the coin. But the second aspect or side of the coin is that then you live within that purity with a kind of purity before God. You confess your sins and receive his forgiveness. You seek to love others as he has loved you. You love him precisely because he has first loved you. So that centers in the, us in then on both aspects of purity of heart, passively received and actively lived. So purity of heart, remember what Jesus says also, that what comes out of the heart of man defiles him. And out of the abundance of the heart, a man speaks. Which again, can have a pretty severe mirror 
or mirror of the law, second use of the law function, if you watch your speech and how you speak uh, inner monologue and to those around you. But here what's in view is the regenerate heart made pure by the blood of Christ, received in faith, regenerate and living in a kind of purity that is confession and absolution, that is repentance and forgiveness. And then what comes up out of this heart is gracious speech. Okay? Grace-filled speech. Speech that edifies. It doesn't always mean nice speech. It doesn't always mean like, oh, this guy could get a job writing cards for Hallmark. That's not what gracious speech biblically is. It is speech that emulates the speech of God because the heart emulates the heart of God. And so out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These two things are connected. Uh, The scriptures tell us that plainly. And then you have the king, which again, I'm going to take ultimately as Christ, of course, but any righteous king, this is true, as, as friend. And indeed, you can recall how Christ calls his disciples his friends. And what a blessing that is that um, we should be counted as the friends of the king as well. So when we come to him with our prayers and petitions, it's like, you know, who, who would ever want to go to the White House, whoever's sitting there, and make your petitions known? Not me. Think about just about anything else would be more productive. But to go to the true king of heaven and earth who reigns, who has all authority, and to come and present your petitions to him and know that he'll receive them in a friendly way and indeed view you as a friend. That's the amazing reality of the gospel and reconciliation with God through Christ, the true king. Okay, on to 12. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, a curious way of phrasing things. So God sees all things, discerns all things. That might get us closer to the sense. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. So, what is, a, what is a traitor trying to do? Does a traitor come right out and say, Hi, I'm, I'm a traitor and I'd like to overthrow everything? No, a traitor pretends to be a great patriot and pretends to be doing everything right so that he can, under the guise of honesty and righteousness, insert and insinuate his poisonous plans, his traitorous ends. So... The Lord sees through that, and he overthrows the words of the traitor. He overthrows the deceitful words and exposes the traitor for who and what he actually is. And of course then, uh, like how does that hit us as Christians? Well, stay far away from the words of the traitor. Stay far away from... um, the kinds of uh, kinds of uses of language that cloak rather than uh, reveal, and be straightforward. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Have that kind of integrity of heart. That's the Lord keeping watch over knowledge that He has given amongst His knowledgeable. Whereas the words of the deceitful one will be found out. He will be found out. Okay, so another one we can file under, <clears throat> the Lord is watching, act accordingly, think accordingly. That's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And how do you fear him? Only if you know that he's A, real, and B, watching, and C, cares. And that's what these Proverbs give to us, that knowledge. Okay, 13 is just fantastic. The sluggard... The lazy person says, there is a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. Which is to say, he'll make up any excuse to not get busy. The reality that there'd be a lion out there who would consume him is preposterous. Uh, Even in the ancient world, they don't let lions roam around the city 
to devour whoever might step out. So this is just such a fantastic excuse. I'm not going to go get a job. There could be lions out there. <laughs> just great. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think um, the study note's great on this. Let's see. Asian lions would not be found on a city street. But in the remote wooded areas of Israel, the excuse is ridiculous. Lazy people use the most unreasonable fears to excuse their behavior. Okay, it's great. So laziness will use any excuse, uh, even the most ridiculous. And of course, then we could file this under the category of Proverbs that um, really inveigh against uh, laziness and sluggardliness, sloth, one of the seven deadly sins. And to be active. And, you know, again, it's not, as though this, it's not as though the laws of God are ever arbitrary. And that the same is true for this law and for this perversion of the law of sloth. God designed us to be active. And that's true from, I mean, pretty much true from birth till death, I think. God designed us to be active and to always be going forward and to always be producing and doing and... Um, fighting the war, you know, uh, of the spiritual battle set before us, of course. Um, But if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't live, the only alternative is to die. And that's indication enough that written into the very fabric of, uh, of our creation is that God created us for action and to be active. So all the more in the Christian life, and Jesus amplifies this, specifies this, when he says, don't be hearers only, but doers also. So seek to I mean, so, so um, imbibe or take in that word of God that affects your perception of reality. That's the first. And then that affects your actions within that reality. That's gaining spiritual sight. And we'll talk about that more few proverbs down. Plus, doesn't it feel... I mean, okay, there's an analogy here. Now, I've experienced this like once or twice in my life, but people who enjoy running, are there any in here? These wild creatures? It's like when I was in high school playing sports and everybody tries to get you to run track and it's like, why would you extract the worst part of all sports out and turn that into us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just teasing. Uh, so, yes, there's, there's some runners in here, some joggers and, or maybe speed walkers. You get that angle going. And um, there's, a, there's something that happens, isn't there? I've experienced this maybe once or twice, where you get, I think they call it the runner's high. And it, like, actually feels good. It's like an endorphin. It's contrary. And, and then it can kind of be addictive. That's why you keep doing it. Because it just feels good. No, it... Maybe the first mile or so doesn't feel good when the joints are, you know, creaking and crying and everything tells you to stop and you've pressed through that and all of a sudden you're kind of in the zone and you're running and it feels good. And this is the same, this is basically the same for everything, is there's this high level of resistance up front and it's true for physical efforts of all kinds and mental efforts of all kinds, spiritual efforts of all kinds. But once you're doing it and you get in the zone, it's wonderful and you thrive, So I think that that's worth keeping in mind um, when we're considering uh, our spiritual activity is your whole flesh is going to be against you. Your whole flesh is against you when it's time to pray. Your whole flesh is against you when it's time that you've set aside to read the Word of God. Your whole flesh is against you um, when you want to fast. You could probably skip a meal and not even notice it just because you're doing something you love. But then you say, I'm going to fast and your flesh is like, oh my gosh, you're going to die. <laughs> no, seriously, it's just a meal. No, you're dead. You're already gone. You're famished. You're not making sense. You're delirious. <laughs> okay, so to know that there's this resistance and to press through and to realize that God's designed and created the world in such a way that there's great pleasure and great reward in activity. Um, even, I, I mean, this is just natural knowledge, and of course it's revealed in the scriptures too. This is just completely consonant. Um, as, as one, I have no idea if he's a Christian or not. It's not Christian wisdom, wisdom per se, but there's this paradox of in discipline there is freedom. I think I heard that from Jocko Willink. Some of you know who that is. 
but in freedom there is discipline. And it's, it, sounds, it sounds contradictory. It sounds like freedom would be to be free of discipline. I can just do whatever I want whenever I want. But as our Lord will teach more deeply, that's just slavery to yourself and to your passions. It's ultimately a slavery to your own will, which inherently will bend to sluggardliness and bend to self-indulgence. So then the press is an outward press um, and to expand beyond one's own will and passions into that which is a greater good, those goods of God. And to do that requires discipline. And through the discipline, then, you gain freedom. So another example would just be scheduling. right? If you live by the discipline of a schedule, at the end of the day, you have conquered way more than if you had no schedule at all. And you said, ah, let's, just take, let's just see how it goes. <laughs> Those are Saturdays where I say, let's just see how it goes. And how it goes is by like noon, my wife's like, hey, are you going to get dressed? <laughs> So, yeah, to have a plan, that discipline actually makes you free to accomplish those things you want to do. Um, it's no different, and, and this way it's not tongue-in-cheek, and, and I hope you don't take it as such when we, when we preach it from the pulpit and in our classes. But this is the time of the church here, or for well over 2,000 years. I mean, really, this principle's been in place, that there's a seasonality to um, Spring cleaning your house to spring cleaning your soul to taking a good look at where you are spiritually and take a good look at those those disciplines um, that Christ gives almsgiving and prayer and fasting and to make plans for those um, as the Old Testament scriptures talk about it they use this language afflict yourselves afflict yourself and through this self affliction. God promises many graces and many blessings. And so this is the time of the church here where uh, it's, it's good to make a plan and to set some parameters. So one of the things that I'm likely to encourage for our congregation, and again, this is all it is, just encouragement. There's no, you're not gaining salvation. And if by failing to do it, you're not sinning, okay? Uh, you are free in Christ, but corporately to enjoin a, a corporate fast and an opportunity in which we'd all participate. Now, when we have not fasted as a congregation or as individuals for at least a couple generations, it's like, whoa, where do you start? Whereas if you look uh, in church history, going all the way back to the New Testament, the New Testament, as well as the Old, are filled with examples and seasonal examples, as well as spontaneous examples of fasting, of afflicting oneself intentionally, um, as, as matter of repentance, as matter of spiritual introspection, as matter of uh, much-needed correction or spring cleaning, sprucing things up where weeds have grown up and entropy and decay have entered in. Okay, so in many places throughout the life of the church for 2,000 years, fasting has been year-round, Wednesdays and Fridays. Fact, when we discovered the Didache, which is the earliest catechism, uh, probably dating from the first century or early second century, the Didache mandates, again, not for salvation, but mandates Wednesday and Friday fasting. So what does that look like? Well, not medical advice, and you can do what you like to do, but in the main, you wouldn't eat on Wednesday and Friday until, say, after 3 p.m., or your evening meal might be another way to do it. You have that freedom to choose. Um, if that's too much for you, if you're diabetic or something like that, take that into account. Don't Act against the, the advice of your doctor, ask in a way that's good, or act in a way that's going to endanger yourself. But that would be the Lenten challenge, is that corporately, as a congregation, um, we would fast Wednesdays and Fridays by just eating the one meal a day. Which, by the way, science, as if you needed this, is catching up and telling us that that's healthy. And telling us we should do that. Um, I can't remember the exact name of what it is when you eat one meal a day, but of course there's this little... Intermittent fasting. 
intermittent fasting. Yeah, exactly. So intermittent fasting, to eat one meal a day. Um, our Lord Jesus, uh, and, and we'll come up on this text, when he was in the wilderness being tempted, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, don't try that at home. But that then is, is, it really shows you how foundational the practice of a Lenten fast is. Because those 40 days, at least in a theological sense, are the foundation upon which the 40 days of Lent are. And so as our Lord fasted, why did he fast? To earn salvation for himself? No, because it's a right and godly fruit of faith. And so also then he says in his sermon, when you fast, just don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't wave a giant sign that says, I'm fasting here. Don't disfigure your face. Oh, what's wrong with you? Oh, I skipped lunch. (laughs) When you fast, he says, just don't do it this way. Avoid the hypocrisy and the self-aggrandizement and just get on about your business. It's good business to be about. All right, so I'll probably write something up for our our This Week at Faith pamphlet we hand out. But I'd encourage you, um, if your health permits, uh, to join us in the Wednesday and and Friday corporate fast. Now, there's some exceptions. If you're um, pregnant or could become pregnant, skip it. If you're in a weakened state or going through some massively stressful thing in your life, skip it. Okay, this... um, And by the way, there's all kinds of exceptions to the fast, like hospitality. You're fasting and someone invites, you know, and grandma invites you over and puts chocolate chip cookies in front. You don't say, sorry, grandma, I'm fasting. Get your fresh baked cookies out of here. Hospitality trumps the fast always. And that's because it's love for someone else, right? It's love for your neighbor. Um, So we can you can talk about that with me if you got specific questions or whatever. But again, you can see that the whole demeanor of fasting isn't a legalistic thing. It's something that God's people have always done because it's a spiritually beneficial practice. In discipline, there is freedom. And there's also going to be revelation. It's going to be revelation about just how weak we are spiritually and just how trying any amount of discipline at all is, especially if it's discipline that goes against our bellies against our hunger. Um, I, would, I would submit that in, in um, American culture, uh, this is maybe one of the most subtle um, and not obvious, but nonetheless manifest and should be obvious, false gods we have and false practices we have. is just eat and eat and eat and eat. And so fasting as a practice goes right up against that. It has all kinds of other blessings and benefits. You know, God's people before they did just about anything important Fasted. You can go back to the Old Testament and look at this. Um, and I'm still a, a student of this myself because it's all fairly new to me. I mean, we lost this for a generation or two. But pastors, anytime they did anything remotely important, fasted. So maybe I'll get around to that too. Um, but that's, that's the history we've come from. And then kind of the gluttonous, uh, post-industrialized West... We've lost all that, and I don't think it's a coincidence why we've lost it. (laughs) So, yeah, there's there's your invitation verbally uh, to to join the church corporately in that fast. If you break it and you come to confession absolution and you say, I don't know what I was thinking, but I had a (laughs) Pop-Tart. I'm not going to absolve you because that wasn't a sin, you see. Sins are contrary to God's law. That's definitionally what a sin is. To break a discipline might be kind of a bummer or a lapse, but it's not a sin. All right, so I won't absolve you. I'll tell you it's not a sin. I can't forgive it. Okay, maybe enough on that. Um, any thoughts you have? Any, uh, any questions you have? I know we went off on a tangent there. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, the just the theme of um, consuming. You know, we consume food. We're talking about in the context of consuming food here, but we're, we're also hungry. Well, just think of the term news feed, right? Mm-hmm. We, we mm-hmm. feed on information. Yeah. And, I mean, it would be enough to just try to discipline, discipline one's appetites for food, but to I'm just thinking about 
the possibility of trying to discipline one's appetite for information Sure. Like a media fast, or would that even be? That'd be fantastic. So that falls under a, a slightly different category called abstention, to abstain from something. And I can, I can be pretty brief here, I think. So um, you, you probably have all heard, what are you giving up for Lent? Or giving up something for Lent? It's like, I'm going to give up the treadmill for Lent. Uh, I think you missed the point. Uh, <laughs> Give up watching golf. Just nap directly. Uh, (laughs) So I I would submit to you that the giving up something for Lent is actually a replacement for fasting by which we salve our conscience. And we do that because the belly of the beast is too strong. Give up anything but feeding me. You know, that kind of thing. So I would would encourage us to uh, don't give up anything for Lent until... You're fasting. Okay? Now, once you're fasting, then to gain, uh, to, to um, go forth in areas of uh, abstention, to abstain from various things is completely on the table. And I love your idea. Uh, log out of your social media for, um, a lo- or stop watching uh, CNN and Fox News. You should probably do that anyway. But. You know, give yourself a, a, a period of abstention from something that isn't inherently sinful um, and push it off. If there's something else you enjoy, abstain from it. Maybe like sweets, for example. Um, and of course, f- there's a, a, a great variety, just as there is in terms of disciplines of how to fast. Like, there's nowhere in the Bible that says how to fast, just fast. Um, there's all kinds of different ways in which you can abstain from things. And no hard and fast rules there. Um, of course, you see this pop up in 1 Corinthians, that mar- um, married couples would for a time abstain from engaging in sexual relation in order to increase prayer. Okay? And that, that is to literally use that time instead for prayer. Uh, but with the admonition of St. Paul that the second that's done, come back together so that the devil has no room to tempt you to fall. Right? So there, is a, there would be a biblical example of abstaining from something that is good and pleasurable, obviously, um, for the sake of spiritual discipline, for the sake of uh, replacing that good and pleasurable thing with something else that is uh, equally as good, um, but maybe not all that pleasurable on account of the weakness of the flesh. Yeah, the flesh hates prayer, you know. So any, any, uh, any war you can fight against that to get prayer going is well worth it. Okay, so abstaining. Thank you for bringing that up, to abstain from uh, the gush of information. It's wonderful. Okay, any other thoughts? Yes, please. Two quick thoughts. Overcoming inertia. I'm thinking of a plane taking off. You have to plan and prepare, and they use a lot of power to get up. But once you're up, you're flying. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and so, the other, I recommend The Dot and the Line, a little cartoon book. It's called A Romance. It talks about discipline and how it creates freedom. It's wonderful. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and, and I would, I mean, I would encourage, too, I would encourage, too, that uh, on account of our sedentary lifestyle, largely enabled by, um, largely enabled by, of course, technology and industry, that, that very much part of a, a discipline of the body in modern context could include things like um, working out or walking or running. So those would be good things, too, because you're disciplining the flesh, you're disciplining your body. And there's actually, a, there's actually a great insight to this. So especially if you struggle with habitual sins or patterning um, of, of sin that's just pervasive or recurrent, to attack that head-on is sometimes a mistake because the flesh holistically is too strong. You want to do an end-around. And the way you do an end-around are through these practices, especially fasting, um, abstaining, or even physical vigorous exercise. That has a long tradition in the church um, as a spiritual discipline. 
And what these things do is limit the flesh. You can think about it this way. You're telling the flesh when it says, um, hey, time to eat, and you say, no, I'm fasting. You're telling the flesh that you're in charge. The same is true when you say, hey, it's time to work out. No, you're too sore. You should just go take a nap. Work out tomorrow. And you say, no, we're working out. You're showing that your will can dominate the flesh and the flesh needs. And, and so this is thoroughgoing. Tell your, you know, your, your fingers are on Amazon shopping before, on the app before you even know what's what. And you say, no, I'm not purchasing anything that isn't an absolute necessity uh, for 40 days, let's say. Okay? You're disciplining. You're saying no to your flesh. Now, if you say no to your flesh enough, then as you, as you get to the besetting sin or the habitual sin or the part of your personality that you are constantly confessing is sinful, you're, you've already weakened the flesh and strengthened the new man. It becomes that much easier to say no. Um, what happens, by contrast, if we say yes to our flesh all the time, eat all three meals and, and, and maybe a fourth, yes. Uh, you're satisfied, but you're not full. Eat some more. Yes. Sleep in as long as you possibly can. Yes. Ooh, that looks difficult. Put it off. Yes. We, you tell your flesh, yes, and it's the boss all the darn time. Your flesh looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the 90s. Just flexing on you and posing. And then, and then it comes to, this, it comes to this, you know, this besetting sin, and you sort of anemically and weakly go, well, I've said yes to you all these other times, sir, but now no, doggone it. And he's just like, out of the way, nerd. You're sinning, right? That, that's, uh, I, so that's the reality, the spiritual reality, I mean, made playful, that the discipline of the flesh is a holistic endeavor. A holistic endeavor. And um, sometimes it's very, very beneficial to weaken the flesh in all, in all these other dimensions and domains so that when, when it comes to you where it's strong in your life or in your personality, you suddenly have a newfound strength to say, no, no thank you, or yes, that is godly, I will do it, that sort of thing. Okay, that's probably enough for today, because I don't want to try to tie that back in somehow impossibly to our text. Let's, uh, let's call it a day. We'll pick back up and finish chapter 22 next week. The Lord be with you.